Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we diffuse weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Victoria Bond. On this edition, we'll feature drugs and dolphins with a bonus interview regarding the plight of the humble bumblebee. But first up, Julianne Popple and I are going to discuss this week's science news. <laughs> Meat ice cream? Scientists from the Red Meat Combi Foods program are looking into ways of separating out proteins from meat for use in other foods, such as meat ice cream, bread and spaghetti. This wouldn't be the first time that proteins have been separated out from their original source, as the proteins casein and whey from milk are now routinely used in a wide variety of food products. According to news.com.au, the researchers are hoping that it may be a way to use low-quality meat that might otherwise be wasted, and also another way of incorporating protein into the diet of those who may not eat enough meat, including very picky toddlers. Victoria, as a medical doctor, how do you fancy a meat sundae? That sounds disgusting as a non-doctor, but I do have to say that um, supplementation oftentimes in foods is a good thing. So I wasn't aware that in Australia protein deficiencies were that prominent. Certainly iron deficiencies is more common, but that's not what this technological advances is talking about. They're talking about actually incorporating the protein. I don't know. Well... Actually, there has been recent research indicating that protein deficiency is a problem, not in the sense that we're necessarily malnourished per se, but more in the sense that not eating enough protein in our diet may be leading to us over-consuming carbohydrates and fats, which may lead to obesity. There's been research done by um, Professor Steve Simpson at the University of Sydney. If you remember back on Diffusion, we had a feature on that discussing the protein leverage hypothesis. No, that's, that's very true. People tend to compensate with carbohydrates. Yeah. I don't know if proteins in this form, though, it would be very interesting to see if, if protein, meat protein incorporated in ice cream or white bread or whatever would have the same effect as meat protein in the actual meat. It depends on, I guess, what proteins they're taking out and putting in, so it would be interesting to see what, what they do. And if it has a good effect on our health. Because goodness knows, as it is, as a population as a whole, certainly there's isolated patches um, where this doesn't apply. But Australians eat far too much meat. And it's responsible for quite a lot of um, our health problems as a population in general. Yeah, that's absolutely. Even even though there is some cases where people undereat uh, meat and protein, it is important not to overeat because the consequences can be pretty dire. But I do think it's interesting that Part of their goal is to recycle this undesirable meat, quote-unquote, because that's a huge contributor to environmental damage. We're wasting all of this meat, and we're producing more cattle to compensate for that, and that has a huge impact on the environment. So I'm quite happy to see people using more of the animal. And it's also worth noting, I did mislead a little bit, 
the ice cream wouldn't actually taste of meat. It just has the proteins in it. So it would still taste like normal ice cream. One hopes. Thank heavens for that. Science Now reports that a single drug can shrink or cure human breast, ovary, colon, bladder, brain, liver, and prostate tumours that have been transplanted into mice. The treatment, which is an antibody that blocks a do-not-eat signal normally displayed on tumour cells, coaxes the immune system to destroy the cancer cells. A decade ago, biologist Irving Wiseman of Stanford University in Palo Alto, California, discovered that leukemia cells produce a higher level of a protein called CD47 than do healthy cells. CD47, he and other scientists have found, is also displayed on healthy blood cells. In fact, it's a marker that blocks the immune system from destroying them as they circulate. Cancer cells take advantage of this flag to trick the immune system into ignoring them. In the past few years, Wiseman's lab showed that blocking CD47 with an antibody cured some cases of lymphomas and leukemias in mice by stimulating the immune system to recognize the cancer cells as invaders. Now, he and colleagues have shown that the CD4 blocking antibody may have a far wider impact than just blood cancers. What we've shown is that CD47 isn't just important on leukemias and lymphomas, says Wiseman. It's on every single human primary tumor that we tested. Moreover, Wiseman's lab found that cancer cells always had a higher level of CD47 than did healthy cells. How much CD47 a tumor made could predict the survival odds of a patient. To determine whether blocking CD47 was beneficial, the scientists exposed tumor cells to macrophages, which are a type of immune cell, and anti-CD4 molecules in petri dishes. Without the drug, the macrophages ignored the cancerous cells, but when the CD47 was present, the macrophages engulfed and destroyed cancer cells from all tumor types. Next, the team transplanted human tumors into the feet of mice, which is where tumors can easily be monitored. When they treated the rodents with anti-CD47, the tumors shrank and did not spread to the rest of the body. In mice given the human bladder cancer tumors, for example, 10 out of 10 untreated mice had cancer that spread to their lymph nodes, whereas only 1 in 10 of the mice treated with the anti-CD47 had lymph nodes with signs of cancers. Moreover, the implanted tumor often got smaller after treatment, so colon cancers transplanted into the mice shrank to less than one-third of their original size. And in five mice with breast cancer tumors, anti-CD4 eliminated all signs of the cancer cells, and the animals remained cancer-free four months after the treatment stopped. Wiseman says, We've showed that even after the tumor has taken hold, the antibody can either cure the tumor or slow its growth and prevent spread. Although macrophages also attacked blood cells expressing CD47, although macrophages also attacked blood cells expressing CD47 when the mice were given the antibody, the researchers found that the decrease in blood cells was short-lived, so the animals turned up production of new blood cells to replace the ones they lost from the treatment. The article was published in the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences. So I think this is fascinating because they've actually used it was it's very clever. They've t- they've looked at the way that tumors can survive, right? So tumors are just kind of masquerading as a normal cell, displaying this molecule on their membranes that says, don't eat me, I'm a normal cell. 
they kind of mess it up because they express too much of it. And so that's what the team here is targeting. So that's the key difference is the amount of expression of CD47. I don't know if it's the quantity per se, but what the, what the drug is actually doing is ramping up the immune system to recognize it and destroy it, which also causes a destruction in the red blood cells. But as the article showed, that's compensated for by ramping up production of red blood cells. So it'd be interesting. I mean, these are only trials in tumors that have been implanted in mice. I think if and when the clinical trials start in humans, we'll see what sort of side effects it has. Because you're essentially training your body to attack yourself. It kind of reminds me of insects, as most things do, being an entomologist. But there's certain types of assassin bugs that'll use pheromones and a chemical signal to say, hey, I'm a sexy female ant, which will bring over the male ants. And then when they come and try and mate with him, they stabs them in the head with his proboscis. I know it's not exactly the same thing, but kind of using a chemical signal to pretend you're something you're not to get through undetected. Yeah, a couple of years ago, um, when I was working at the National Institute of Health, the team I was working on, Dr. John Morris, we were developing an antibody against a protein that breast cancer tumors tend to show, which is HER2. And um, there's already a drug on the market that exists that's called Herceptin, and we were developing a new one that was polyclonal as opposed to monoclonal. But I won't go into the details because that's probably boring. But anyway, it was fascinating because you are, it's its like providing a vaccine, right? Like you're teaching your own body to attack this alien thing. But the scope of what Wiseman's lab has done is so much wider than what I was working on. Our laboratory only targeted a protein found on breast cancer cells, but Wiseman's actually found a protein that's expressed on all cancer cells. And I think that's what has people really excited. For the first time, you can almost, you don't even need to tailor a drug to the cancer, you know, this, this will just work if it works. That is very <laughs> exciting, actually. Moving on to somewhat more uh, social topic, bisexual dolphins. A population of free-living and free-loving bottlenose dolphins has been discovered off the coast of Western Australia in Shark Bay. Researchers studied the movement and behaviour of 120 dolphins in the area and found that these dolphins engage in highly complex social interactions, including bisexual interactions. In fact, male dolphins can go through exclusively homosexual periods. During the mating season, groups of two or three males will work together to herd females. And males also form long-lasting bonds with up to 14 other males. In fact, the researchers know of at least one group of seven males known to have been interacting for 17 years. Even though male dolphins do form these tight-knit groups, their ranges overlap with other groups and... Aggressive interactions appear to be less frequent than you'd expect from other mammal groups such as chimpanzees. According to study co-author Richard Connor, who was interviewed by Discovery News, dolphins are similar to humans and elephants. All three have big brains and complex social lives. He suggests that perhaps certain environmental pressures in their evolutionary history drove the development of such big brains and such complex social structures. I find it interesting that this kind of idea that there's homosexuality in animal kingdom um, and bisexuality, it's, it's not the first case I've heard of, actually. I've also read a few years ago about koalas. It's been documented that there is lesbianism in koala societies as well. And in lots of bird colonies. I mean, almost, almost all animal species have shown that homosexuality exists. There's actually a quote that I love that says um, homosexuality is present in 
thus many species, but um, homophobia is only present in one, mm. which I think was pretty clever. But um, it, it's nice that, as opposed to bonobos, um, it's not associated with aggressive behavioral patterns. Yeah, absolutely. That I found that interesting. They they do show some aggressive interactions between um between female dolphins and and or ma- and female and female dolphins and between male dolphins as well. But apparently, it's rather limited, like much less than you'd expect. So they're rather free loving creatures of the sea, which just makes them even more charming. As Walt Disney so cleverly said, um, "Darling, it's better down where it's wetter." I think we'll probably leave it. There. <laughs> You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, recorded in the studios of 2SER in Sydney, broadcast on 107.3 FM, and brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Listen to us on the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Have you noticed how suddenly bee colony death is a huge problem worldwide? Two recent studies indicate that certain pesticides may play a role in colony deaths for both the honeybee Apis mellifera and the bumblebee. The studies have been carried out by a French team from the National Institute for Agricultural Research and a British research team led by Professor David Goulson from Scotland's Stirling University. The results of both studies have created quite a buzz within some scientific circles. Dr. Julianne Popple sought independent comment from Dr. Jerome Boul, an entomologist from the University of Sydney, on the implications of this new work. There's been concern in both the US and around the world over the mass deaths of bees and bee colonies, and it's been suspected that pesticides may play a role in this. Now, there's Two new studies that have come out, one from a French team and another from a British team on bees and bumblebees respectively. What's novel about these two studies? Well, it's in the way these studies try to assess the impact of these uh, insecticides on, on bees. The usual way to assess whether an insecticide uh, impacts on a on a species is to calculate the dose at which uh, it will uh, kill the insect. Uh, but what beekeepers had already uh, been worried uh, but for more than a decade with this particular insecticide is that they thought that it wasn't killing the bees uh, in a very um, obvious ways, but was rather affecting their behavior. And there were actually studies that had already shown more than 10 years ago that uh, bees affected by these insecticides had trouble finding their way back to the hive. So these studies actually try to quantify the effect of these insecticides on the behavior rather than trying to find out when they actually kill the bee or the bumblebee. 
Okay, so I was reading in the case of the French study that they found that by exposing the bees to pesticide, that it, when they released them at a distance away from their hive, that about 10% would get lost, and in unfamiliar environments, about 31% would get lost. Would this be sufficient to explain the colony collapse? In the case of the French study, the, what uh, the scientists did was to take the proportion of bees that got lost and didn't find their way back and calculate it through a model how it would affect the, um, the colony, and they found that this would be enough to uh, explain the collapse of hives. I was reading that there was another scientist who commented that the model was perhaps less robust way of assessing whether this would contribute to colony collapse. What do you think about that? I think the model here is a very legitimate way to uh, to actually uh, work. Uh, it's uh, it's used as a tool to uh, to assess uh, the link between the uh, the mechanism, which is the uh, the effect uh, of the insecticide on the homing and. Uh, and uh, the effect on the colony hive. So you make predictions with the model, and uh, and then uh, it's up to further studies to uh, to uh, validate that further. Uh, there's been some comments about the the levels of pesticide concentrations used in these studies, and whether they are in fact too high. Well, the, in the case of the French study, the the doses that were used were, were actually matching uh, doses found in flowers in previous studies in the field. So, so that means that these are doses that actual bees might, might get from flowers. Is this enough evidence to justify either the banning or the reduced usage of the pesticides involved? There is no an extremely strong evidence uh, that we should at least be careful, and I think temporary bans are, are probably quite reasonable. Actually, some of the molecules involved in these studies are already banned. The imidacloprid, for example, has already been banned in France, but not in entire Europe. But it, its ban for the, for the entire Europe is actually being considered now. This alone might, is probably not going to be enough to stop the syndrome of sudden colony death because there are other insecticides out there and there will be others used. There are, there are mites, there is habitat fragmentation, there are a lot of factors that combine all together and that might pose the, the, the syndrome. But if we don't start to act on every each individual component, of course, the syndrome is not going to go away. How concerned should we be about sudden colony death in bees? I mean, it's not just a case of loss of honey production, is it? No, well, the bees are are the major pollinators in uh, many parts of the world and uh, if they're good then uh, pollination is not happening anymore for many species. <laughs> a lot of plants rely on them. If they're good, there's, there's nothing replacing them. That was Dr. Jérôme Bull speaking to Dr. Julianne Popple about pesticides and the plight of the humble bumblebee. For this week's edition of In the Name of Science, Julianne Popple tracked down Dr. Trevor Wilson in the wilds of the University of Sydney to talk about the hazards of staring at plant genitals. Some people will do amazing and bizarre things in the name of love. Others will do it in the name of their country. But nothing 
nothing compares to what some will do in the name of science. What's the strangest thing you've done in the name of science? Okay, I thought of one situation where, in my master's degree, where I had to do research out in the field. My field research for my master's was quite easy because it involved walking around buildings. I studied the vines and the buildings of the, my biology department, so I'd be out there quite a lot, just studying the organism. If you, you want to spend time with your organism to understand it, how it grows or how it develops and that sort of thing. So um, I was usually out there every day, take a break, had a coffee, watch some plants. They didn't move too much. But I'd be collecting specimens out on the sidewalls and you'd be standing up looking at these vines. I would get some odd looks from time to time. And I, and I kind of realized when some, some other postgraduates uh, came by one time and, and saw me and were wondering what I was actually doing, <laughs> uh, standing up against the wall with my hands in front of me. It's amazing, no matter where your hands are, up to your head or all the way down to your knees, wherever they are there, people can't see them from behind. So they think that they're um, aimed at your groin area. <laughs> so I realized. So you were hanging around campus with your hands concealed up against walls and people thought something very unscientific was going on, perhaps. In fact, the, the walls were well urinated. <laughs> so what were you trying to observe with the vines? I'd be looking at the flowering material um, of these vines that are quite closely related to grapes. So they, they, they scale walls using these adhes adhesive discs. So I was trying to examine how the flowers and the branches the flowers are on are similar, to, or how they are similar to the actual adhesive discs that um, the, the plants use to climb as well as the differences in the flowers so that we could examine differences between species of similar plants. And what did you find? Something totally unexpected, <laughs> which all that time, all that time being up against the wall <laughs> was uh, really, really paid off. found that some of these, some of these uh, vines would terminate into these group clusters of flowers and Essentially, it kind of showed how these flowers have actually changed into these adhesive discs, or at least the, the branches that, that support them. So it was all in the name of trying to um, understand better what the, the tendril or the, the climbing structure is on things like grapevines. So understand how they stick to the walls, basically. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's that component of my funny research but in addition a lot of my research involves observations so um, subsequently my PhD involved me examining birds and bees visiting flowers of all sorts of plants that are native to Australia and um, you might find me in the bush with a telescope or a pair of binoculars in places next to sidewalks or other walking paths so I've 
had been very uncomfortable making sure that I'm not actually some weirdo in the bush examining people. You're just some scientist sitting in the bush examining plant genitals instead. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever get any comments from people when you were, you know, doing your observations? No, fortunately, fortunately, no, it was mostly in my head. But you have to be careful around, you know, buildings and stuff like that. You, yeah. it, even bird watching. You don't want... The feathered kind. Yeah, the feathered... <laughs> Not that kind of bird. <laughs> but, yeah, you want to be careful that uh, your your lenses don't end up kind of directed towards anybody's window or anything like that. <laughs> but fortunately, most people are quite innocently think that you're actually doing something quite interesting and are always wondering what you're looking at. And you are certainly doing something interesting. Uh, Thank you, Trevor. Thank you. That was Dr. Trevor Wilson talking about staring at walls in the pursuit of scientific knowledge. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. You can send us an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. Once again, that's diffusion at 2ser.com and give us some much appreciated feedback. If you'd like to be on the radio and you live in Sydney, we'd love to have more volunteers on Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. Once again, that's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program this week were myself and Dr. Julianne Popple. Diffusion has been produced by Julianne in the studios of 2SCR and broadcast on 107.3 in Sydney and nationally via the Community Radius Network. I'm Victoria Bond. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL... The first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar.